Diane, we good? All right. The gift of authority. I've been preaching on this subject now for probably about a month and a half. And this morning we have a fifth installment out of Luke chapter 10 and verse 19. Jesus said, Behold, look and understand, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. Now, up until this point, we have been applying um, the teaching and the, the message, preaching on authority and the authority God's given us. Greatest gift that God gave to mankind was to restore our authority that he gave us when he created the world and set us in this world to rule and to have dominion. We've been applying all of it to our walk with the Lord, prayer and fellowship and our communion with God and building ourselves up, taking authority over the enemy in our personal lives. But this morning I want to shift gears a little bit and I want to talk a little bit about cultural engagement. What is our responsibility as the salt of the earth? The church has done a pretty good job of being the light of the world, but we have done a fairly miserable job of being the salt because there's a great deal of confusion among Christians. What does it mean to be the salt of the earth? Salt has an inhibiting effect upon rot and it slows the natural degradation of food. And so that uh, the, the Lord has put us here not only as the light but also to inhibit the natural process of degrading in society and Salt's a preservative, to preserve what's good. So with that in mind, when Jesus talks about walking among snakes and scorpions, he's basically saying the power of the enemy, he said, behold, I give you authority over all the power of the enemy. The power of the enemy is the power that Satan uses to turn the world into a place of moral depravity and corruption. And Jesus is saying, I deal with that by giving you authority over it. Isn't that amazing? That the Lord didn't say, don't worry about anything. I know things would be miserable. You're going to see a lot of awful things, and people can be crazy and do crazy things. But I just got it all under control, and I'll just deal with it. You guys just go to church. But Jesus, right? But Jesus wasn't saying that. He said, listen, you can walk over the power of the enemy, the depravity, the corruption, and the way that I deal with it is I give you my authority over the power of the enemy. So your maturity in Christ as a Christian, growing up, spiritually developing, depends on you understanding the relationship between your authority that God has given you in Jesus Christ and his word and how to use it against Satan. So this morning, I want to talk about a phrase that's, that, that I've um, enjoyed for decades, and that is the sword in your mouth. Now, I know that sounds a little odd to you. Um, I know some people have a sword in their mouth, but it's not the kind I'm talking about. And a little advance warning. Uh, there'll be an excessive use of Scripture in the message today, so just... Uh, Kind of a heads up, a little more than usual. But let me just, let me just throw out a phrase, and, um, and then I want to look at some verses in Revelation. The church today, by and large, is, as a whole, the Catholic church, Protestant churches, various denominations, evangelical church, all the different 
denominations and independent churches collectively. The church today is being conditioned to not focus its vision on the Jesus of the book of Revelation, to focus solely on the Jesus who's of the Sermon on the Mount. But the same Jesus, when he rose from the dead, appears in John's Revelation. Matter of fact, the book of Revelation is called the Revelation of Jesus. And so when we look and see Jesus in the book of Revelation, what we're seeing is we're seeing the Lord who's sitting on the throne right now. And so I want to just share with you a couple of verses out of Revelation just to, just to help you see what I mean when I say that the vision of Jesus today in the book of Revelation the church is being conditioned not only to ignore that and not focus on that vision of Jesus, but to reject it. Not everybody, but there is a conditioning going on. I think you'll understand as we get going. So in Revelation, first chapter, right off the bat, there's a vision of Jesus. And in verse 16, it says, He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. And then towards the end of the book of Revelation, and by the way, that sword in the Lord's mouth was showed up a couple of times in the book of Revelation, but towards the end, I want to mention it's uh, um, in chapter 19, we see it. And I'm going to read some of this just to give you the context. Then I saw heaven open. Now this is at the end of the tribulation period. This is uh, um, as the Lord is about to return and come and uh, take possession of the earth that belongs to him. I saw heaven open and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen, following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe, at his thigh, was written this title, King of all kings, Lord of all lords. So it's pretty apparent that Jesus is going to return to a world whose societies have gone dark and corrupt and insane and have completely rebelled and thrown off any sort of restraint of righteousness. In fact, Isaiah's prophecy will have been in fulfillment for a number of years. Truth has fallen in the street. Justice has stepped back into the shadows. And those that want to live righteously make themselves a prey. So the wicked rule, we see a terrible time at the time that the Lord returns. And so the scripture says that he will wage a righteous war. Now nobody wants to see a Jesus that's got a sword and going to wage a righteous war. And especially against the, the um, rising and seemingly prevailing sentiment of the culture today, which is 
There should be absolutely no criticism of anybody's opinion or lifestyle or the ideals or whatever they may be. And um, yet here comes Jesus. He's coming and he's, and he's going he's to make war with the nations. So that sword that proceeds out of his mouth is, is obviously the word of God. And, but I want to share another scripture out of Revelation because amazingly, he actually uses this sword against some Christians as well as the world. So buckle your seatbelts if you haven't had this thought before. Consider in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 through 16. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you live. Now, what I'm about to say, the message of the Church of Pergamum, think about this. It sounds like he's talking to the Church of Clearwater, or Pinellas County, or Florida, the United States of America, just about anybody, anywhere in the world of conflict today. Church of Pergamum, this is the solemn pronouncement, says the Lord, the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live where Satan's throne is, yet you continue to cling to my name, and you have not denied your faith in me. But I have a few things against you. You have some people there who follow the teachings of Balaam, Balaam the false prophet, who instructed the king Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so they would eat food sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. In the same way, there are also among you those who follow the teachings of the Nicolaitans, a sect that taught Christians could engage in immoral behavior with impunity and no consequence. Therefore, the Lord continues and says, therefore repent. If not, I will come against you quickly and make war against those people with the sword of my mouth. So we see that same sword that makes war against a rebellious society that is completely given over to darkness. He threatens that church and says, because you have and allowed in the midst of you those who have revised my word and revised your fundamental beliefs to accommodate sin and corruption in the current temperature of the world, I will make war with you with the sword of my mouth. Now, I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know. But it just doesn't sound good. I don't want Jesus making war with me. Um, where does that sword come from? He's got a sword in his mouth. It's the word of God. But that's, that's kind of broad. That's sort of general. It's a little bit generic. Um, so what is he talking about? Where does he, from where does he draw that sword? It's obviously the word of God, but what word of God? Where does the sword come from? I think the question is answered like this. The very words of God that are spoken in the Bible, which separate good from evil, that discern wickedness from righteousness, those words that have been delivered to us, those words that we declare, 
those words that we live by, those will be the very sword in Jesus' mouth. He's not going to come with a different word. He's not going to come with a different set of, of uh, expectations. He's going to come with that eternal word that God has given us from the very beginning. Those that sow rebellion, those that sow unrighteousness, those that, re, that uh, reject and renounce the truth, those words that we are responsible and accountable to declare to the world, to live by and be examples of, that is the sword with which Jesus is going to make war with some believers. He's going to say, now you'll, now you'll deal with me. You could get your pastors and your elders to go along with this nonsense. Here I am. Try it on me. Amen. That's basically, I know, I know he's not going to walk down the middle of the street at high noon with spurs jingling. A little too dramatic, but you get the idea. There's a confrontation coming. Amen. This isn't going to just go. Because, and, and I don't care how many people, groups, universities, governments, politicians, libraries, and churches pile on in agreement so that everybody's saying and everyone's agreeing with it, righteousness and evil will be distinct. They are distinct. And no thinking on anybody's part can change that. That is the sword of judgment that proceeds out of Jesus' mouth. So now we come to the question, should that sword be in our mouth? Well, certainly, we shouldn't be going around slaying people. That's not the idea. This message, I'm kind of threading a needle because it could easily be um, taken out of context and abused. But you look like a pretty balanced crowd this morning, and I'm thinking, you know, you're adults and, and you understand and can receive this in the right spirit. But that question is still posed to us. And rather than me sharing my opinion and me saying to you as your pastor, this is what I believe, let me tell you what the scripture says. Back in the Old Testament, in Psalms, David writes in Psalm 40, 149, verses 5 through 9. Listen to this. This is great. Let the godly ones exalt in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. To, now, did you catch that? Now, the sword's not in their mouth, but it's in their hand. This is, at this point, the Holy Spirit's not inhabiting the, those that follow Jehovah, follow Yahweh, follow God. Christ hasn't yet come, but the, the word, when Jesus comes and rises from the dead and new life enters, we're born again, that sword goes from our hand to our mouth. Hallelujah. And so he says, let the praise of God be in their mouth and let a sword, two-edged sword, be in their hand. Obviously the same sword Jesus took up and he's got it in his mouth in Revelation. And what is the purpose of the sword? Let's read. It goes on to say the two-edged sword to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is an honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Bang! There it is. Wham! I mean, you just can't hit a bullseye any better than that. This is an honor 
God has given to all of his godly ones. See, now godly ones aren't going to run wild like a bunch of fanatics and start slaying people with the words of their mouth and, and just attacking people and calling them terrible things and carrying on and, and forsaking, really, the gospel. Um, but when he says that we are to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron and execute on them the judgment written, what kind of kings and noblemen do you think they're talking about? As we've shared already, scripturally, rulers over cities, communities, nations, and empires have demonic structures that sit over those dominions that move like puppets, evil people into positions of authority, manipulate them, and that's how Satan captures nations. Incrementally, by just moving into people's lives, getting them to cooperate with him, the foolishness and the little rebellious ways of their heart soon become access ports for Satan, and they become easily manipulated, and they're the ones that Satan wants to move into positions of power because they're easy puppets. They're willing accomplices. And so as you see governments fill with more and more foolish people that are willing to embrace unrighteousness, rebel against righteousness, and to uh, introduce evil and wickedness in the culture, who's really running the country? Who's really the king? Satan's the king over that country. Right? No matter who's president, Satan's king. Satan's running the show. Right? Is that not right? So, the high praise of God should be in our mouth, but guess what? Something else. Two-edged sword. We should be executing vengeance. We should be tearing down those strongholds and dealing with those demonic structures. Jesus said you can walk through serpents and scorpions, and it's your business and your responsibility to deal with them. I want to deal with them through you using the authority I have given you. You cannot bind Satan without casting down evil imaginations. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the weapons of our warfare are mighty through God to the tearing down of strongholds, casting down evil imaginations and every high thing that opposes the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You cannot exercise spiritual dominion over the enemy if you don't engage with the thoughts that are evil, that are being taught in school, spoken from platforms of authority. You have to cast down those thoughts. You have to engage with them and challenge them. People make their own decisions. But what kind of decision do they have if you don't present the challenge to rebellion with righteousness. The church is not helping anybody by going silent and just simply being nice and getting along and hope people will like you and hope that they'll say, oh, there's a Christian, there's a, that's a very nice person, so I'm going to accept Jesus. How many of you realize that plan doesn't work? More than any other target, Satan aims his attacks against anyone who dares to answer evil with the word of God. We can't have people walking around saying, well, wait a minute, that is a lie. Wait a minute, that's wrong. 
No, this is what the Word of God says when something completely crazy is being presented as fact and reality. Well, it's fine as long as everybody has their own opinion, but when they try to take your children and train your children in evil, that's when you have to, if you're any kind of parent, you've got to stand up and say something. You have a responsibility and accountability. What did Jesus say? You could walk, you're going to walk through serpents and scorpions and don't ex sit back passively and expect me to deal with it. I have given you authority and you're to deal with it, which means you have to risk being disliked by standing up and saying, sorry, not on my watch. That's not true. This is what the Bible says. Oh, but they'll laugh at me. Let them laugh. The guy on the white horse with the sword proceeding from his mouth is coming. He's on his way. Let them laugh. You don't want Jesus to show up and you be found on the side of those that cooperated with evil because you didn't want to, oh, but Lord, you know, I didn't want to ruin my reputation. What did they do to Jesus' reputation? I read the Gospels constantly. I just cycle through them. And you know what? It's pretty obvious to me after all these years of reading the gospel that Jesus had a horrible reputation in religious circles, in governmental circles, in circles where renegade authority had gripped society. But he had a good reputation in heaven and among people that were broken and needy. Hallelujah. He had a good reputation. Did he let the bad reputation stop him? Did he ease up? Did he back up? Jesus never backed up. Come on, church. Hallelujah. We're talking about Jesus. The overwhelming condition characterizing the latter times is this. The absence of clear judgment. Everything you read in the Bible about the last times, the end times, the world ramping up to an apocalyptic uh, conclusion is that judgment, clear, concise, righteous judgment, we used to call it horse sense, common sense. Moms taught it to their kids. You used to be able to send your kids to school. They could come back with some common sense. You know, rather than coming home from school, believing that they can turn themselves into an alien or whatever other kind of crazy thing. Oh, mom, I'm a porcupine today. So, the absence of clear judgment in society and also in the church. In the last days, a great falling away from the church is going to take place because many in the church will withdraw and retreat from judgment. They'll simply lay down the sword of judgment. They'll stop making judgments because the world doesn't like us judging them. Are you listening to me? There's two verses, I know you're familiar with them, but I, again, I just want to put the markers down. Um, the clear absence of judgment or the absence of clear judgment in society is the overwhelming characteristic of the world in the last days moving to an apocalyptic time. Isaiah 59, 14 says, truth is fallen in the street and judgment has retreated. You can't turn on a television without seeing judgment in retreat. Full on retreat. Judgment is retreating. Those who are brave enough to speak any kind 
of truth and judgment um, are facing being canceled. And so there's falling back in silence. Growing, multiplying, large churches have adopted the policy. We're going to keep this quiet because we can't afford to be canceled. It's going to affect our bottom line. And then in the book of, uh, book of Thessalonians of the New Testament, Paul writes, and I really want you to catch this, let no one deceive you in any way. The return of Jesus will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The great falling away from the truth that will divide the church and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the Antichrist. There Paul just lays it out. Jesus is not going to come back until there's a falling away in the church, not in the world, in the church. The church is being divided. Let me tell you what the falling away is. The falling away is nothing less than the willingness of Christians and churches to give the Bible a makeover. With selective edits to suit a rebellious culture. That's what the falling away is. Why we're, we're you know, we're just, uh, we're just abridging this thing. We're just modifying it. We're just helping to clarify it. So that, you know, we want to be relevant. We want to, we want to win people. We don't want to offend people. Jesus told us to win people. How many of you realize that the church in the book of Acts realized that it was their job not to win people. It was their job to lay the word down and the Holy Spirit was responsible for winning people. It wasn't their job to win people. It was God's job to win. Nobody comes to me, Jesus said, unless the Father draws him. And if you don't give a clear, concise presentation of the gospel and win, then you don't have to run out in the street and say, well, all this woke nonsense is just nonsense. You just go out and preach the gospel. But when you're asked, when someone comes up to you and says, yeah, well, I believe this, they're putting down their marker. They say, well, this is what I believe. And they're asking you to respond. Show some courage. Have a backbone instead of a wishbone. Stand up and say what the truth is. So you don't have to lead off with, you know, we, we don't approach people assuming that they're all crazy, out of their minds, polluted. Don't judge a book by its cover. You don't look at people. I don't care what they're dressed like or what they look like. You need to talk to the soul of every person. Every person. Speak to their heart. Let them ask the questions. But then you better have some courage and be willing to let that sword be in your mouth. They need that sword. They're in confusion. They need someone to help cut them free from those, those chains. Can you say amen? The Church of Acts saw the kingdom of God override the kingdoms of darkness in the first century because the sword of the Spirit was in their mouth. Not a modified gospel. The sword of the Spirit. They were bold. They were more concerned with disappointing and, and rebelling against the Holy Spirit than they were against upsetting the Romans, or the Greeks, or the barbarians, or whoever. Consider how the Christians, one of the greatest stories in the book of Acts was the conversion of the city of Ephesus, the world center of the worship 
of the demon god Diana, a city filled with philosophers, filled with wickedness, and very cosmopolitan, very modern city. Consider how the Christians, with the sword in their mouth, captured the city of Ephesus that was ruled by Diana. It says of the city in Ephesus in Acts 19.20, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. That word prevailed means there was a contest. That, that word prevailed means there was some kind of a conflict. There was an engagement. And the word of God prevailed. Here's what happened in Ephesus. Paul labored for two and a half years in Ephesus, engaging, disputing, the Bible says, and teaching the gospel until it broke Satan's stronghold over that city. He began with 12 guys who were disciples of John the Baptist. And he told them about Jesus and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, got them baptized in the Holy Ghost. Glory to God, speaking in tongues, moving in the gifts of the Spirit. Now, baby, that's church planting. There's your church planting 101. He got 12 guys, got them baptized in the Holy Ghost. Man, that's how we ought to be planting churches today. Somebody say amen. Then he went to the synagogue, went straight to the God's people, went into the synagogue, the Jews, until they rejected him and they threw him out. So he left there. He took all the new believers that had received Jesus and he went and found a secular school, a school of one named Tyrannus, found a secular college. Secular, he, he, they let him in. And he started teaching the gospel and preaching the gospel there in the secular school. And for the next two and a half years, he preached the gospel with signs and wonders following, hallelujah, until the word of God broke the stronghold of witches and sorcerers over that city. Hallelujah. And let me tell you, he wasn't just going out with little tracks in his hands and telling everybody Jesus loves you. Did he tell them? Yes, that was the centerpiece. Jesus loves you. He's come to save and deliver you. Deliver you from what? If everything's fine and nothing's wrong, why did Jesus ever bother? Why was his death so violent? Why was there such a clash? Jesus didn't lay down and take a nap, some sleeping pills, and then never wake up. That's not how he left this world. He left this world being tortured to death. Why? Because he stepped into the violent conflict between the nutty insanity of demonic-inspired thinking that seeps into governments and schools and any institution of authority. I've told you up till now, all of this conflict is about authority. Who is going to have the control? When righteousness reigns, men and women are free. They're not trying to dominate one another. They're just living their life. Everybody is free to succeed or fail. But when wickedness rules, there's a Nimrod. There's a Hitler. There's a Stalin. There's some repressive Marxist communist regime trying to shove everybody into conformity and control everyone's life. But before that can happen, 
they have to strip the preachers of truth out and silence them. So Paul brings revival to that city by challenging not just the need for Jesus as a savior, but the fact that he is king of kings and lord of lords. And he has his ideas, his thoughts, they are what is right. Amen. Can you say glory to God? So at any rate, bring it to today. Today's ambassadors of Christ, who all of you are Christ's ambassadors, we face the same mission with the very same assignment with which Paul went into Ephesus. Put the sword in your mouth and refuse to be silenced. You know, it was nearly 50 years ago that Kathy and I got saved. I came out of, you know, the hardcore dark atheism. And when we got saved, we got what we used to call a bone saved, hardcore saved. When we got saved, our mandate taken straight from the scriptures was you take the word of God in your heart and in your mouth and you refuse to be backed down. You will not be silenced. You won't be put down. You're not here to get the world to approve of you. You're here to bring Jesus before lost souls. Mario Murillo is a Christian author. I, I rather like a lot of the stuff that he writes. He recently wrote a book called Don't Leave Quietly. It was written to the church in which he calls churches of America to wake up to their ambassadorial calling, to stand up and to speak out against the darkness overtaking our land. And he writes in his book, I just wanted to share this one excerpt. Murillo says, America is being flooded by evil and depravity because the loudest voices are evil and depraved. They have the national microphone they have silenced everyone else. Sadly, that's largely true. You know, God, when he speaks about, when Jesus spoke about the devil, God identifies the nature of Satan as a voice. He calls him the accuser. Everything Satan does, he does by talking. His, his quest to steal your authority, he uses words to talk you off of your authority and to take your authority and abuse it. Satan is a nonstop mouth of blasphemy, constantly deploying countermeasures against anyone who will speak the truth, deploying accusations and threats to silence the voices of truth. The reason Satan's preachers are destroying America's culture today is because they're shouting down all the voices of truth and reason. And most of the voices of truth and reason are willing to be shouted down because of the threats against them if they don't. As I look back at 6,000 years of human history, I would describe it like this. 6,000 years of human history is the terrible results of a 6,000-year war of words. A 6,000 year war of words. Think about it. Hitler's evil oratory prepared the German children to grow into Nazi stormtroopers. And then he captured Germany with those children, pressuring Christians into silence 
and then he attacked the world with his mouth. And they all do that. They first start talking to their children, get them in line, make stormtroopers out of them, and then they attack all their neighbors. The same formula wiped out 100 million people in the 20th century with Marxism. And today, that same formula is dissolving America with woke insanity. If loudmouth liars can destroy America, then holy bold voices can save America. Who is going to use their authority and not back up? The church needs to shout down the woke prophets of Satan. There's just no getting around it. The scripture mandate is all there. It is part of our gospel mission. Let me share with you a warning as we wrap this up. Like Queen Esther came to the kingdom for such a time as this, the Jews were facing annihilation. In the moment of her challenge, the church in America right now is at a perilous intersection, a great test the church faces right now. And let me tell you what it is. You might be surprised um, to hear what I, what I have on my heart that I'm going to share with you, but uh, here goes. I see a wave of rejection, a strong wave of rejection against woke domination of our society. And I see it is beginning to rise from among unchurched, non-Christian, common American people. Uh, common American people who are not necessarily church are rising up and they're saying, I'm fed up, I've had this craziness. You went over the line when you went after my children, sorry. You do whatever you want to do and you know, in the privacy of your own lives, but you're not going to transform our society and your own evil little um, you know, enclave of darkness. So there is a rising revolt against this woke insanity. Here's the warning. If the Christians go down in history as failing to stand against this cultural tyranny with those that are rising up, the church is going to end up being relegated on the scrap heap of history. We will become weaker than ever. It will be acknowledged that we did not stand, that unsaved people fought back against darkness, but the church just stayed safe in their pulpits and behind their uh, knee-deep in carpet and, and cushy chairs behind their doors. Say, so where's that in the Bible? Well, I can tell you right where you find it. The salt, if it loses its savor, is good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden underfoot of men. That's where the church is headed. If we don't seize this moment right now and realize this is our calling, we should be leading this charge. We should be the voice that is standing up. And the way we do it is, as I said earlier in the message, with wisdom, with love. But we can't, we can't sacrifice the truth. In the face of tyrannical evil, we cannot sacrifice the truth. 
just to get along. Because unity with rebellion is what? Rebellion. If all you are is the devil's sparring partner, you're not winning anybody. History is filled with accounts of spiritual darkness being raided and its captives being delivered by Christians with the sword of the word in their mouth who refuse to be silenced by cultural intimidation. So I'm calling on my fellow believers and everyone I can get to listen to me to be the salt of the earth. To have the sword in your mouth. And if you wonder what that sword is, read those verses in Revelation. Take strength. Take courage. Jesus is coming. And when he comes, he's not going to be walking in a sweaty toga, calling for people in the villages to believe the message of John the Baptist that I am the Messiah. He will be coming as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, to wage a righteous war against nations that have utterly destroyed the societies of the world with their nuttiness. I close with this verse. 1 Timothy 6 and 12. Most of you are well aware of it. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of and seize eternal life to which you were called and for which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Why in the world would you need to fight to take hold of a faith that you already have? Fight the good fight, take hold of eternal life. We're not just taking hold of eternal life for ourselves. We're taking hold of eternal life for those that are lost. They need someone to fight the fight of faith with them. And if all you're doing is being silent while they kill themselves, drown themselves, dilute themselves with deception, and you're not throwing the life raft of truth to them, you're not saving anybody. Fight the good fight of faith, not just for yourself, but so that others can take hold of eternal life for, and confess that good confession before many witnesses. All right, well, from here on out, this... Scriptures I share with you, things I've said, they're just going to have to keep preaching while I shut up. Stop. Hallelujah. I want you to stand to your feet, and I want you to come join me down the front. This is our Jehovah Jireh table. Jehovah Jireh is the, uh, the mountain of the Lord where Abraham took his son, Isaac, that God had given him to sacrifice him and give him back to God on that mountain. But the Lord stopped him, didn't he? And the Lord said, wait a minute. Glory. I know that you believe me. And the Lord answered Abraham's faith centuries later by bringing his son and allowing him to be sacrificed for us.